few things are as important as a roof over our heads, but as we know, unfortunately, that's not guaranteed for everyone. I'm James Whitmore, and you're listening to Econ 19, a podcast from the University of Melbourne that takes you inside the economics of the coronavirus pandemic. In this episode, we're going to be talking to a researcher who's just completed a survey of Victorian sharehouses during the pandemic. As we'll see, COVID-19 has exposed deep problems in the housing sector. Hi everyone, I am Laura Panza and I'm a senior lecturer uh, in the Department of Economics at the University of Melbourne. I'm an economic historian and large part of my work uh, focuses on the Middle East, uh, specifically on the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century. And in terms of topics, uh, I'm broadly interested uh, in the drivers and in in, in the implications of economic inequality. Uh, discrimination and segregation uh, through uh, an historical lens. So beyond the Middle East, um, I've worked also on understanding patterns uh, and determinants of inequality in Australia historically uh, since the beginning uh, of the British colonization. So it's a a really huge area of study you're across. Uh, Yeah, but um, I think there there are these binding themes uh, of economic inequality and discrimination. So while I've particularly interested in the Middle East, uh, these are really the themes that I have explored also in other contexts, also globally and through uh, various uh, uh, historical periods. And I think that's what binds uh, my main research interests. Yeah, which brings us to what we've invited you on the podcast to talk to you this afternoon about, um, which is your recent work on share housing during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Laura, could you just tell us a bit about how you came to study share housing? Share house tenants, that are also called group households, they represent a disadvantaged and vulnerable group within the Australian society, uh, which has not been studied much by the literature. And I think it's interesting to look at this group because Australia historically has been uh, at least since data are available from the early 19th century, a country with very low levels of income inequality, especially uh, if we look at it from an international perspective. However, despite these low levels of inequality uh, in this country, um, obviously there are groups of the population uh, that, are, uh, that have been discriminated or that are much more vulnerable and disadvantaged. And actually, share house tenants are one of them. uh, And this is because of the attributes uh, or their characteristics uh, that people that live in group households have. Despite um, the fact that COVID was, you know, has been uh, described or portrayed as a great equalizer um, because nobody is immune from the virus. uh, But actually, uh, recent research uh, that has been following the spread of COVID has highlighted uh, the the nature of unequal experiences and impact across various populations. It's really interesting. So can you tell us some of the characteristics of people in share houses? So in terms of getting to the numbers, uh, so our sample has more than 1,000 respondents. Uh, 52% of them were considered young, uh, as in uh, uh, aged between 25 and 34 years old. But the study median was 28. Uh, And this compares with 37 years old, which is Victorian uh, median age. Uh, Other important features are the fact that their weekly income uh, was $650, uh, which is uh, like roughly half of the Victorian uh, comparison uh, of the Victorian mean. 
Uh, and uh, the, maybe the worrying thing uh, or the, the particular feature that highlights their uh, uh, low income is that their median savings uh, was only $3,700 relative to the 30,000 Victorian comparison. Uh, and on top of that, those uh, who reported to have minimal savings, so less than $500, uh, were actually 23% of the sample. Um, which is, uh, is, is quite worrying in terms of uh, financial stability. Um, in fact, we also asked uh, um, if people had more debts that they could pay back or they were still just managing paying their debts, and 36% responded yes. Um, then going to other characteristics in terms of citizenship status, 62% were citizen, uh, citizens, 15% PR, and 23% migrants. So uh, the share of migrants uh, was quite large. Um, and of those employed, 50% of them were employed on a part-time basis. And the vulnerability of and the employment um, uh, component becomes even stronger if we, if we look at the contract type, the breakdown, the breakdown by contract type. So we know that 36% of them were uh, casuals and 14% of them uh, were employed in contracts with less than two years, uh, 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 with a duration of less than two years. So really 50% of our sample was living on a precarious uh, contract type. So people living in share houses are younger, they work in less secure areas and roles, they have less money, less savings, more debt, and they're more likely to be migrants. So what kind of impacts has the pandemic had on share house residents? First, uh, we looked at the types of shocks uh, that people experience. And maybe not surprisingly, but 80%, 86% of our sample um, responded, replied that they uh, experienced at least one type of shock. Specifically, if we go into the categories and the types of shock, 74% of them uh, were reported to be working less or to have lost a jo their job. 50% uh, of them reported to have a worsening mental health, a worsening mental health. Um, 50, around 50% of them uh, also uh, reported to have an income shock, so earning less money and not managing to pay, um, to pay expenses, living expenses uh, as, uh, as, used to, as they used to before uh, COVID. And in fact, the fact that they had such uh, difficulties, uh, such negative income shock, that really uh, triggered uh, the fact that 40% of them tried to renegotiate rent. Uh, and um, uh, to try to get a reduction on the rent. 23% uh, pawned or sold something, uh, and 20% um, of them went without food to pay bills. Um, then if we look specifically at the housing dimension, uh, we found uh, that 26% uh, were in housing stress. So housing stress is something that is defined as the ratio uh, of rent uh, to income. And if this exceeds 30%, just for the um, middle, uh, low to middle income earners, that doesn't apply to high income earners. So if that exceeds to 30%, it means that people are in housing stress. So 26% of them were in housing stress and 18% of them in extreme housing stress, meaning that this ratio goes up to 50%. And we know that people uh, that, um, that are within, within this category are much more likely to become homeless. Um, we also found that almost one quarter of the sample was uh, in a lived, lived uh, in overcrowded condition and was experiencing overcrowding stress. 
um, so these are the main types of shocks. Then if we go uh, and look at the categories of people, as I kind of briefly mentioned uh, before, uh, really the main, the main attributes, the main personal attributes that determined, uh, that increased the likelihood of experience these compound shocks uh, was being young, being casual, and being an immigrant. Uh, so being young increased um, the probability uh, of of experiencing a shock uh, relative to the comparative comparative to their the compa the category of non-young. So in this case, uh, we called it being young as being 35 years or 34 years or below, and old 35 years of, or above. The same for visa holders. Um, when we actually did more breakdown, we also found that indigenous people, uh, even if they have a, we have a very small percentage of indigenous. Um, uh, people in our sample uh, were more likely to experience shock, and the same was for part-time workers. So it really highlights these, these levels of vulnerabilities that become accentuated uh, during times of shocks, of economic shocks like those brought about by COVID. Yeah, it's really very worrying because these are sort of already groups of people that we have our eye on as people who are, you know, working in more exposed industries because, you know, they're working in restaurants that have had to close down so it's kind of is it a kind of that on top of being more exposed to you know the labor impacts of the pandemic these people are also more exposed where they live yeah exactly and this is kind of highlights the inter intersections between public health and housing condition uh, because yeah actually we found that the big chunk 50 percent of our sample were uh, working either in health hospitalities, retail, uh, or education. So these are like some of them were really essential workers. So, and because some of them lost their jobs and uh, uh, well, some of them had, had to continue going to work uh, in the health sector, uh, had to return home to a more precarious and vulnerable situation that really increased the likelihood uh, of, of spreading uh, the virus if they got infected, but also the fact that they had to go to work because they need uh, money because of their low income, that again increased the likelihood of maybe uh, not following the strict requirements uh, of the lockdown. And when you live in an overcrowded uh, housing uh, situation, uh, of course, it's really hard to self-isolate uh, or keep um, keep social distancing, uh, and that uh, increases again. Uh, it kind of uh, shows the overlap between the health, uh, health risk and these income vulnerabilities. I want to go back to some of the points that you raised in when you were talking about the impacts that people have had on share houses. You mentioned negotiating rent, um, which is something I've seen people talking about a lot. It's kind of hard to know the rules about what you're allowed to do when you're talking to landlords and agents. Is this a bit? Of, is this part of the problem there? Yeah, part of the problem uh, is is really comes from the fact that um, uh, people uh, are not really aware of their rights, so um, uh, and of their rental rights. And in fact, this is something that emerged a bit in our survey. We actually asked. Uh, people uh, whether they renegotiated rents and only 20% of them said yes, despite uh, being uh, having uh, economic difficulties. Uh, and the reasons for not renegotiating rent was that people were not sure about their rights, were not feeling secure, uh, for example, because they were subletting a room. So they were not in a formal rental agreement. Uh, so um, this really highlights the fact uh, that 
more knowledge we need more knowledge we need to spread more knowledge to this to the to people uh, that live in these vulnerable uh, conditions uh, about the rights actually when i presented this research when kate and i presented this research at bhhs uh, they also um, reported that people actually uh, tried they were kind of ashamed they were feeling stigmatized just by the fact uh, of needing to ask help uh, to the government um, and this really highlights the fact that uh, COVID-19 is really taking also uh, like a man, is, is impacting also people uh, feeling um, of feeling of being secure, feeling of empowerment. And that's why I think we found uh, such a negative mental health shock because people like small business owners, uh, in the case of the, the DHHS examples, uh, or people that have never asked help, now they need to go and ask help to get to the government, and it's something they feel ashamed about. And they're compounding that to the fact that there is very little knowledge uh, on what to do and how to do it, and sometimes going through the real estate agent instead of, uh, for example, accessing the rent relief provided by the government. Uh, so this is something that um, can inform really uh, how to improve uh, these, these policies, these uh, packages that the government is offering uh, pe uh, to people to mediate uh, the, the negative shock. There's been a lot of work in Victoria around, you know, kind of creating a more balanced relationship between tenants and and landlords. Is this kind of showing us that that hasn't gone far enough or, you know, or just that there needs to be more communication around it or what do you think? Yeah, definitely there needs to be more communication. And specifically, uh, I think the problem with share house tenants, uh, differently, for example, from people that live in social housing, uh, they don't need to go um, so, so people that live in social housing, they can uh, deal directly with the government, while people in share housing tenants, they still need to go to the private market. And so they need to use the, the real estate agents as mediators. Uh, so definitely uh, having a reform, potentially having a reform uh, in, in a rental reform on these specific categories, people that live in a share housing, that, that it's something that uh, is definitely welcome and something that uh, we should be thinking about. So you mentioned this thing called housing stress, which is when people pay a third to even a half of their income on rent. Yep. Um, so that must be sort of tricky in places like capital cities like Melbourne where, you know, house prices are pretty high. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, in fact, this is actually one of the reasons why we are observing an increase in the share of uh, share house uh, uh, households. Uh, in fact, this is, is a trend that it, uh, it's, it's been going on not only in Australia, but also in most of the, the, developed, the developed world. Uh, so the fact that uh, affordability, housing affordability uh, has, become, has become more and more of an issue, uh, that really led to an increase in the number of people living uh, in share houses. So uh, it's more of a necessity than, than a choice for most people. At the moment, there are roughly 4.3% people living in uh, group households. Uh, that's based on the 2016 ABS data, uh, but this uh, this uh, is a is a share that has been growing uh, since uh, 2011. So um, probably nowadays, uh, if that continues on the same trend, it might have reached roughly five percent by now. So let's start talking about some of the solutions. Are there particular support structures that help carry people through? So the positive uh, thing of the of the survey is that we found that 71% of people reported to have a support network defined as group of family or friends or community that helped them uh, in situation of financial hardship like the one 
um, of, uh, caused by COVID-19. So the third thing that we looked at really in terms of mediating factor was uh, this, uh, what we call social capital. So the role that the social networks played uh, in, uh, in the pandemic. Um, and just by looking at the simple statistic, having this strong uh, base of support network was already a good sign. Uh, but then also 68% of people reported that they agreed or strongly agreed uh, in, the center, in, in the fact that uh, families uh, work, their family worked very hard to support them uh, during uh, uh, COVID, uh, the COVID phase. It wasn't only family that played a role, but uh, also housemates in some cases. And this, this, this type of help of social network is important not only, um, not only in terms of practical support, uh, like people that you have, you can ask information, but also emotionally, as well as financially, obviously, um, given the... Uh, the nature of, of this shock. Uh, but then moving on uh, away from social networks, so the family and friends uh, into the government, we actually also uh, looked at whether uh, people who access JobKeeper and job seekers and the rent relief provided by the government uh, were uh, effective in mitigating the risk, uh, running a similar type of regression as before. And we found that the answer is yes, actually, those who access rent relief and JobKeeper uh, were less likely uh, to experience a shock. And we are talking here about the 15% lower likelihood of experiencing a shock. So really, this means that uh, the, these policies were successful, even if not everyone, for example, took the rent relief. And we found that government support was actually the channel that mattered most to mitigate these uh, negative, uh, negative COVID uh, shocks. And this is above and beyond the role of social capital individual attributes. Really, these highlights uh, that it is important to continue providing people this, uh, this support, this financial support, and uh, definitely in the, the decision of withdrawing, for example, childcare workers uh, from uh, receiving uh, this support, uh, the job uh, keeper payments. Uh, this is actually, uh, sorry, the job seeker payments. This is, uh, this is, I think, not a good idea, especially because many of those workers are employed in casual, uh, in the, in, are casual uh, and under, employed under casual contracts. So I wanted to, I think it was interesting that you were talking about social networks and that must be a bit hard because some of the people that we're talking about here are, are migrants who might, you know, they might not speak English or, you know, might not necessarily have the same community networks that people who grow up in Australia have. Exactly. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by this. In fact, uh, there's uh, quite a bit of research in economics uh, that looks at social networks in developing countries and usually they find that uh, groups, uh, ethnic groups or social groups that are lower income uh, are less likely to have good social networks. And yeah, it was nice to see that this is not the case in Australia and hopefully that points. Uh, um, I don't know to the, le to the, the extent to which these are inter-ethnic um, networks because we didn't ask, we didn't go that, uh, that in, in depth in the survey. There could be, you know, uh, social networks within the same uh, migrant community, which is very highly likely because uh, maybe also the way uh, in which uh, Melbourne uh, is uh, and Melbourne demographic is. So you have concentration of ethnic groups, specific ethnic groups in sub suburbs. And I would expect uh, to have also, been, for example, a group of Indian uh, migrants all sharing the same house. But, you know, there could be also hope that this is uh, and goes beyond uh, ethnicity and that highlights that uh, there is uh, also something uh, that the community 
uh, as done positively uh, within within this uh, this arrangement. Maybe this is something that we could investigate in the in the next wave of surveys. Do you think there's a possibility here of other models of housing, like co-ops or you know rent to buy models? Anything that really could work in terms of housing arrangement uh, for people who live in like group households don't need to be uh, not dominated by low income uh, people that uh, don't do it because of choice, but because of necessity. Uh, and yeah, I guess alternative. I'm not familiar with other other models that either countries that have adopted these these models successfully. I think lots of it has to do with culture. Like culturally, we are used, especially in the West, right? We are used to these nuclear families and nuclear arrangements. And I think that while there is some shift to more uh, open-minded, uh, I don't know, libertarian views, it's still much de- deep into the you know the Western. Um, individuality that you know you have your own family and this is your own world and I don't know uh, how much Western Western people are like uh, this this idea of sharing but they are definitely from an efficiency perspective I think that they would be uh, great as long as you know everyone gets along. Was there anything in this survey that you found particularly surprising? Yeah so I think one of the most surprising thing was this mental health shock. I was very surprised that you know 50% reported to have uh, worsened their mental health especially if we consider that 21% of them already reported to have a bad a bad mental health to start with. So actually having these even becoming even worse it's it's concerning. So given that you know you can't go worse than bad so it means that more people that were would normally not have Bad, bad mental health actually um, had experienced a worsening in mental health. And we also need to bear in mind that this was just the first wave. So we, because we ran the surveys in June, uh, so this is when people were already more optimistic uh, and also they had uh, lower, uh, they were, the, the, the economic damage uh, was, was lower back then relative to today. I also found it shocking that people, 20% of people reported to have skipped meals uh, or that 23% reported to have sold something in order to pay bills or rent. Um, this is uh, especially concerning because we always think of Melbourne as you know uh, most livable city. We think of Australia with the low levels of inequality, and actually um, it could be around the corner in my suburbs that people actually have to skip meals in order to make, uh, make ends meet. And yes, also compounded with that is the fact that the share of people with minimal savings was also shocking. Like having $500 or less in savings, it's really, it just shows there's not enough, enough capacity to endure uh, this type of shocks, uh, this type of shock that COVID is bringing. And maybe on the positive side, as I said before, it was really nice to see that uh, there were people uh, with a strong family connection or uh, community connection uh, and including housemates. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it is surprising, uh, positively surprising to see that these networks did make a difference and help people cope. Um, as you mentioned, this survey was conducted in May, which was when we were in our first wave of the pandemic. And now we are hopefully coming to the end of a second wave. But obviously, the economic impacts of that have been much more severe. You've mentioned the mental health shock of that. But what what are the implications of the second wave? Is it just that all the things that you would have seen are, are worse? Yeah, so... Um... This I can only speculate. Uh, we are planning to run another round of surveys in October, so we will be able to actually 
provide a better answer then. Uh, so we will also be able to have a panel so that you know we can have more precise estimates. Uh, but yeah, given that the restrictions are much tougher now, and then given the cumulative negative effects that uh, there are economy-wide, we are now uh, in the biggest economic contraction since the Great Depression. So unfortunately, I expect to see even stronger impacts uh, on uh, on sharehouse sharehouse households, um, and because of the the features of these uh, the people that live there, um, we know that most people who lost their jobs are those that are employed in casual contracts, uh, and these in turn are more likely to be young and migrants. So these are exactly the feature of share households um, and yeah the second likely negative outcome is mental health and these uh, i guess it's again uh, is deeply connected with income i hope to be proven wrong uh, but yeah i'm not i'm not expecting um to see a positive uh, effect or or and no change relative to what we had. And uh, yeah, maybe a third concern is um, something we kind of touched upon, but it's really the nature uh, of uh, the share households and the relationship uh, that have often been strained uh, as highlighted by some of the survey responses. And there was only May, June. Uh, so these really, we know that when people live in overcrowding spaces, they have limited outside option, they have zero personal space. Uh, so that could be another worrying dimension. Um, uh, yeah, so pretty much highlighting the fact that it's not only not possible to social distance, but also it's really hard to have some privacy. So that might, might worsen Hopefully not, but yeah, uh, these are just speculation. We'll see what the results will tell us uh, in October. So what's the main takeaway here? Is it that the government should really be spending big on those, you know, income support payments? Yeah, so on the one hand, yes, uh, we should, I think the government should definitely support people who are who have uh, lost income um, and definitely support them because we don't want to see uh, people unemployed and we don't want to see an Australia, do we want to see an Australia that is more unequal, that looks more like the US relative to what we are now. And we, history has showed us that, for example, during the Great Depression, it is thanks to government support and government engagement in reconstruction uh, and in, in, public, in the public sector uh, that helped countries go out uh, of, the, of the recession. So we definitely need, I mean, together with other policies, but we definitely need uh, some government support. It's also, as we said before, there's also... Uh, we've also seen that it's not always enough uh, to just have uh, this, this support, uh, definitely in terms of just monetary income. Uh, it's also tra- retraining, possibility of training, of improving skills. Um, that could be something else uh, that, we could, that could be looked at. Uh, and to improve rental outcomes, something that we mentioned before is really uh, providing maybe a rental reform uh, or uh, providing more targeted information to share households, international students, migrants, those who, who, who belong uh, to these uh, to these households about their rights and about the rights they have to get uh, to get support. Knowledge is power when it comes to housing, particularly if you need to renegotiate your rent. And let's not forget the importance of all that government money going to income support. If COVID-19 has exposed deep inequalities in the housing sector, perhaps it can also show us how to make things better. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Laura Panza. For the survey we talked about in this episode, Laura worked with Dr. Katrina Raynor, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Subscribe to Econ19 for new episodes. For more insights on the economics of the coronavirus, head to our website, fbe.unimelb.edu.au forward slash econ19. Econ19 is recorded on Wurundjeri land. 
The podcast is produced by Seth Robinson, Sophie Thomas, and me, James Whitmore. The theme music comes from Premium Beat.